following discussion features national security expert Dr. William J. Parker III, a combat veteran, U.S. Navy captain, and the chief operating officer at the East-West Institute. In this live conversation, Dr. Parker pinpoints five key threats to national security and sets out a comprehensive vision for addressing these threats to create both a safer United States and a more peaceful world. Please enjoy our conversation with Dr. William J. Parker III. We're gonna talk about threat quite a bit tonight. And so when you keep throwing a term out there over and over again, it's nice if you define what the heck you mean by it first. So we'll do that. Okay, I got it. Um, so whether you're at State Department or you're at Department of Defense or others, and I was the, uh, the, the chief of war plants at the Pentagon for a while. So the way we would identify a threat is we would look at both intent and capability. So imagine this. Imagine that, that you, you're a big man. So uh, imagine you weren't, weren't so big. You were a real little small guy and you had a water pistol. But you said you were going to squirt me with a water pistol. Well, your intent is way up here. But your capability, because you're a really little guy and you have a squirt gun, is, is on this side. So the threat gets greater the further over here we go. Does that make sense to everybody? So both intent and capability. If we have an organization or a country that has a lot of capability, but we think their intent is very low, we get very concerned about that or a little antsy about that anyway because their intent can change in a, in a heartbeat. So we have to watch that and it'll adjust very often as we're watching intent, but we know their capability is over here somewhere. So again, just to, to reiterate, and when I talk about threat tonight, I'm talking about intent and capability, okay? And um, that would obviously be the bad area right there that we're talking about, okay, if they're up there in that region. Uh, can, can anybody imagine anybody, any organizations or anything that is really capable and has said that they want to do harm to the United States? Can you think of one? North Korea, okay, that's good. Now, can you think of one that maybe is, is highly capable but has never said that they want to attack the United States? China, perfect, okay. So that, that's exactly what we're looking at right here. So, so where do you put China? Well, do you say China is a threat or isn't a threat? Well, it depends on how you look at it. But because intent can change quickly and capability is so significant, you have to consider that they're a possible threat anyway because their intent could change. Okay? We're going to do something by the numbers right here. Um, two, I'm going to give you two theses tonight. Uh, three, we're going to touch on three books very quickly. Five, we're going to talk about five threats. And I will tell you that I went out to 250 of my best friends who were at the National Security Agency, the agency, the uh, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, et cetera, and I talked to all of them and asked them what their five threats were. And I was expecting to get five line items. What I got back were pages. These are my five threats because... And I got all these pages to the point of, I think, about four or 500 pages right now um, of, of answers I got back. So I'm going through those. But when you look at this, you will probably see that many of these would be the same ones you would come up with. And some of them may surprise you. Um, 7.4 uh, billion. Can anybody tell me what that number? Uh, very good. 325 million? U.S. population. You guys are good. 1.37 million. Well, maybe. But what else? U.S. military. That's how many are on active duty in the U.S. military right now. Less than one half of one percent of the population of the United States. Twenty point six. Man, you guys are good. Nineteen point five. GDP, right? 
763. If any of you get this, I'm going to be really impressed. <laughs> and also, <laughs> and also, if you take the, um, the national debt and you look at a carrier strike group and you take the aircraft carrier, all the ships that go around it, all the submarines, all the airplanes, and all of the people, you could buy 763 carrier strike groups for our national debt. I'm not saying we should do that, but it just puts into perspective what the national debt really is when you look at it that way. Uh, 65 million, 300,000. It is the number of refugees in the world as of yesterday. So to give you an idea, if you made this, the population of a country would be between Italy and France. Okay, we're gonna talk about that a little bit too. You're like, this is national security, why are we talking about refugees? Why are we talking about the debt? I think you all are very smart people, you know why. My first thesis for you is that the Arab Spring, Brexit, and the 2016 election had two things in common. A disenfranchised people, and they took advantage of social media, and they did it very well in all these cases. And I would also offer that um, the United States, in the, in the case of the Arab Spring in particular, was not quick enough to respond to this because there was not a break in between. So if we look at it, they had access to social media, they had discontent people, they came down here and they bypassed all these filters. The government, the traditional media, they bypassed that. So there was no time for intellectual rigor or real discussion on their side or on the recipient's side when we talk about the Arab Spring. And so because there was not time for that, there wasn't time for the what if scenarios. So we have to figure out a way as a country, we have to figure out a way to respond to these quicker. Obviously you wanna predict when you can, but you can't predict every threat out there. So just some thoughts for you. Secondly, I offer to you that American exceptionalism does not equate to American isolationism. I think you can be an exceptional country without being an isolationist country. As a matter of fact, I would offer to you that if you are going to be an exceptional country, you cannot be an isolationist my opinion. I said I was going to touch on three books. John F. Kennedy, um, probably one of my favorite presidents, maybe besides uh, Lincoln, uh, for many, many reasons. Uh, but if you read Why England Slept, and by the way, when I went to Harvard um, and I went to get this book out of the library, it wasn't there. Um, and so I went to all the libraries that, that Harvard has, and it wasn't in any of them. So I bought two copies. It took me about six months to get them. I left one at Harvard and the other one I have. Um, and, and what Why England Slept talks about is England sleeping before the start of World War II. And what were they thinking or what weren't they thinking? And why did they assume that these bad things would never actually happen? That Hitler actually wouldn't be as bad as he is? That others wouldn't act the way that they did? And so out of that, while I was in, in uh, grad school at the Kennedy School, I wrote Jihadist Strategic Communication. And I had a conversation with somebody here earlier that's uh, very, uh, very smart on this issue. But as you think strategic communication, think information operations, public affairs, and defense support to public diplomacy. And I took this and compared um, some other tyrants and really bad people in the world in our history uh, and compared them to how bin Laden did things. The one thing that he did really, really well was they had one message consistently, kill Americans. 
It was that simple. And we were trying to get our arms around what our message was going to be. And we were very often too cute by three. And, and by changing the words and trying to be cool, et cetera, we never really got a good, simple message out to our population and the rest of the world. And that led me to this, this tome that, if nothing else, it's a very good um, doorstop. Uh, we wrote this in about a year. The Supreme Allied Commander of Europe did the forward for me, uh, Admiral James Stavridis. Um, other folks in there from the National Security Agency, from um, the cyber world. Uh, I think we have 13 or 14 bronze stars between us. Um, and it's, I think, a pretty thoughtful piece. Uh, we broke it up on purpose so that you could go in and look at parts about the Air Force or about the Army or about Special Forces or about cyber. And you could read on just that part if you want to, or weapons of mass destruction. So that's kind of the way the book was written. It took us about a year to write it. It took about a year and a half to have it approved by the government because it had to go through a lot of government agencies. And that is the speed of heat. It really is. They, they moved to get this thing approved for us, which uh, we're very appreciative of. So my five three key, uh, key threats to national security are these. State actors, a hybrid of non-state actors, WMDs, and instability, the national debt and inflation, national disunity, and the growing level of displaced persons. And we're going to touch on each one of these for, for a minute or two. I am leaving here early in the morning to go to Korea, um, where I will make uh, an, another trip there. I've been with, uh, with our um, with our government folks uh, talking, I've also had six of the, uh, of the very senior assemblymen from Korea with me for a week in um, Washington, D.C. We, we spoke on the Senate floor, et cetera. Um, so we've been working this issue for a while. The East-West Institute does conflict prevention, and so very often we're bringing these types of people together to have conversations, whether it's Sunnis and Shias or uh, non-state actors or state actors. We bring them together very quietly and have those discussions. What we don't have is a grand strategy. So China just had a pretty significant event. Anybody know what it was, what it was called? Party Congress. Exactly. The 19th Party Congress just finished. And Xi Jinping came out with basically 14 points, very well articulated. And those 14 points really lay out China's grand strategy long term. Our strategy in the United States, we have a national military strategy, we have a national security strategy, we have a national defense strategy, but we don't have a grand strategy that goes across all of the cabinets, that looks at all of our efforts. If we did, we would be more efficient and more effective. But we don't have one of those right now, and I offer that we should. State actors. These are the four main state actors that, that come to my mind. Uh, and you may have different ones, and that's, that's fine. Um, and I pick these for a variety of reasons. We're going to um, we're going to bear down just a little bit on uh, on, on Korea because that's uh, that has a lot of focus, a lot of attention, folks, right now. Uh, China China is building a very modern military right now. Um, they also have a a relatively robust uh, economy um, that's that's doing well, although some of their private banks are uh, are suffering uh, a bit. Uh, and their intellectual capital is growing leaps and bounds, uh, and that's important. And when you look at the number of uh, Chinese students that are coming to the United States, it's a very large number of people to go to our Ivy League schools, et cetera. Uh, and we don't have the same number going to China, although that number has been increasing in the last few years, which is uh, good news. Russia. 
A lot of people say, well, Russia's in the past. Well, are they really? Because Russia and the United States still have the preponderance of nuclear weapons in the world. Russia still has a very significant military. Russia just put one of the most capable submarines the world has ever seen to sea. Um, Russia is expanding. Um, and uh, you know, if you, if you look at the Ukraine, if you look at Georgia, if you look at uh, Syria, if you look at uh, their, their works with the Turks right now, um, it is expanding. Um, and, um, and, and Vladimir Putin's actually doing a pretty good job of being quiet when he needs to be quiet and being uh, robust when he needs to be robust. Um, but they're an issue. Iran. Um, we're going to talk about Iran a little bit more when we go back to, uh, to Korea here uh, and the impacts. Because a lot of Korea's missile technology comes from Iran. Um, a lot of the missile technology that is going to, uh, is being shot at our friends and allies comes from Iran. But we also have to remember that Iran was really the United States' best friend in the Gulf prior to the fall of the Shah. Okay, and there are an awful lot of Iranians, many of whom I know, um, who would very much like to be close to the United States again. So this is an opportunity as much as it's a threat. And then lastly, Korea, North Korea. And in particular here, I offer to you that there is more of an opportunity here than a crisis with, with North Korea. Um, there is an opportunity to uh, improve the lives of 25 million North Koreans, protect the lives of 25 million South Koreans in Seoul. There's an opportunity to improve the economy um, in that country, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. But does anybody have any idea what the um, individual gross domestic product of a uh, North Korean is a year? Make about $1,800 a year. South Korea makes about $33,000 a year. That means that the delta between the two is a 40 to 1 ratio is what it really comes down to in spending, in actual spending ability. It's about a 40 to 1 ratio. If you compare that to East and West Germany, that difference was 5 to 1. Okay? It will cost about $2 trillion to unify these two countries. But the reality is the South Koreans are very interested in doing this. Why? because their aunts, their uncles, their grandfathers live on the other side of an otherwise arbitrary line. So they take this very seriously. So there's a real possibility here of, of bringing these two together. I could not have been happier to see that, um, that uh, Jeff Feldman um, landed in North Korea yesterday. That's really good news. Uh, it means that, uh, that we are talking government to government with uh, with the Koreans. Now, it's true that uh, Feldman works for the United Nations right now, but the reality is he is talking. He, the guy who was the Assistant Secretary of Defense of, uh, of State, is, is talking directly with the North Korean leadership right now, and that's really, in my opinion, good news. The other side is that we have to make it very clear to the North Koreans um, that uh, a nuclear country is not acceptable. And so you say, well, why not? What's the big deal of one more nuclear country? We can shoot their missiles down. Okay, let's say we can shoot their missiles down. We have Aegis, we have Thad, we have Patriot. We have lots of capabilities to shoot their missiles down. Well, here's how this plays out with North Korea. And, and think of it from China's perspective for a moment here, if you will, because they have a very complex situation in their own backyard. Okay, so if China allows or, or does nothing and the United States comes in and does some kind of combat operation. And even if no WMD is used, 
Okay, when I say WMD, weapons of mass destruction, I'm talking chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and high-yield explosives. Okay, so even if none of those are used and none of those end up drifting into their airspace or into their water, imagine this. Do you think if there's combat operations in the, on the peninsula that it's going to impact their economy considering 90% of all trade in the world goes by ship? Probably. And then you have the issue of they have a very weak set of civilian banks right now. So that's going to impact their economy and hence the global economy. But let's go beyond that for a second. Let's say that we do nothing and China does nothing and we have a fully nuclear capable North Korea. Then what happens? South Korea will then go nuclear. Okay, they will go nuclear. South Korea goes nuclear. Japan and, and Abe have already said that if they're threatened like this and this continues, they're going nuclear. So now you have a nuclear Japan and a nuclear South Korea and a nuclear North Korea. Well, what do you think the Chinese are going to feel about a nuclear Japan? I offer to you that they will probably increase their nuclear capability to serve as a mutually assured destructive kind of capability, okay? So now they have mad capability. South Korea has mad capability towards the North Koreans. The Japanese have it towards both China and towards North Korea. And so now the nuclear numbers start increasing. But wait, it gets better because North Korea got away with it. So remember our friends over here? If North Korea gets away with it, do you think these guys are gonna let that go? I offer they probably will not. If they go nuclear, what happens to Saudi Arabia? What happens to Qatar? What happens to all the other countries over there as you start looking at the Sunni-Shia issue in the Middle East? Okay, so you're saying, yeah, but I'm here in the United States, I don't really care. What, really, come on, leave me alone, okay? My issue to you is that if you have that many nuclear weapons being built and you have that much fissile material, we're gonna lose track of all that fissile material and then you're gonna have a dirty bomb go off in San Francisco or in Manhattan or somewhere else. That's why we care about it. And that line that I just laid out to you of a nuclear North Korea to a nuclear Japan and a nuclear South Korea, which increases the number of nukes in China, which means uh, uh, Iran goes nuclear, which means the Gulf goes nuclear, is not far-fetched in any way, shape, or form. That's why we care about this. This issue has been kicked, the can has been kicked down the road for a long time. Not that nobody has been trying, everybody's been trying for, in a lot of different ways. Sunshine policies and lots of different policies, but the reality is we are now in a situation where something has to be done. Hopefully that's not combat operations, but something has to be done. Okay, and by the way, if you talk to guys who are former military guys or active military guys, they will tell you that the absolute last option should be military by a long shot. But if nothing else works, you can't allow this to continue for the reasons we just talked about. So, here's what I offer to you as seven points of why this is an opportunity and not a crisis. We talked about the 25 million North Koreans. We talked about the Korean people reuniting, and I think this is important. It's very important if you talk to the South Koreans, and I just talked to a defected North Korean last week. And when you talk to them, they all say the same thing. My family lives on the other side of that arbitrary line. It's an opportunity for democracy throughout. The only thing different between North and South Korea, the only thing once that line was built, is that there was a democracy to the South, and to the North it wasn't. Nothing else. 
an opportunity to get rid of the nuclear weapons. And quite frankly, I think this could set a precedent for the rest of the world. Say, look, this is a way we can actually get rid of these. Okay? An opportunity for China really to step up to the plate here. And I think the Chinese in many ways are trying here very hard. They're in a very complicated situation right now. We just finished our party-to-party -party talks with, uh, with the Chinese uh, once a year. We take uh, Republicans and Democrats there, or they come to us. Every other year we go, we go to Beijing, or they come to us. And these party-to-party -party talks just finished. And these are some of the things we talk about. An opportunity for the United States to continue the role as a global leader. And that doesn't necessarily mean combat operations. Matter of fact, that, again, is the last, is the last resort. And again, I couldn't be happier to see Jeff Feltman over there today. And then finally, an opportunity for the North Koreans to join the world of responsible leaders. And again, I wrote this yesterday, been talking about it for a couple of weeks, and now to see face-to-face -face talks is, uh, is really good news. So those are the complexities, but I just wanted to lay out here for you just, to, just a reminder of North Korea, where Seoul is here right on the border, well within artillery range of everything, okay? Don't forget Russia up here. It's a small border, but it matters. Because remember, at the end of the day, if you blockaded North, North Korea, even if you got the Chinese to buy off on it, you'd have to get the Russians to buy off on it too. Because that small border matters. Without doing combat operations, you would have to. And then you got Japan here. So all those missiles that are flying over Japan or flying into the Sea of Japan, you can see how, how close they really are. I'll just kind of walk through this uh, relatively quickly, um, but this is uh, major military engagements around the world right now. Non-state actors, WMD, and instability. Anybody give me an example of a, uh, the use of WMD recently? In Syria, exactly. Where else? Back in Iraq with Saddam um, Hussein. Yep. Where else? How about Tokyo? Did they ever use WMD in Tokyo? Yeah. Sarin gas. gas, exactly. So we, we were very fortunate that we had really dumb terrorists on that particular day. They had sarin gas, but they didn't realize it was heavier than air, so they put it on the ground. And when they, when they um, set this off, basically they popped the bags. They popped the bags, it sounded just like that um, when they did it. But not as many people died because it was heavier than air, thank goodness. Um, but that kind of thing, and a lot more. So you can imagine what happens. When people say WMD, they immediately think nuclear. I offer to you, think biological. Chemical will kill people in a room or a small area. Biological, think Black Plague, killed I think one third of the population of Europe over a couple year span. Now imagine what happens today when you get something that you can't respond to with all the global travel that's going on. So from an epidemiological standpoint, it is much more significant to have a um, biological event than it is to have a nuclear event. All horrible, but biological will by far kill the most number of people. So there was an organization called BioPreparate. Anybody heard of BioPreparate before? It was the chemical biological program of the former Soviet Union. It was the largest chemical and biological program in the world. It was run by a guy by the name of Ken Alabekov. Colonel Ken Alabekov, MD, PhD, one of the nicest men I've ever met, is a US citizen now, um, defected near the end of, um, of the Cold War, 
but the reality is all of those doctors that were part of BioPreparate, MDs, PhDs, et cetera, some significant scientists, they got scattered to the winds when the, when the former Soviet Union fell. Unlike what we did at the end of World War II where we grabbed up as many German missile people as we could and brought them back and said, may I introduce you to Goddard Space Center or NASA, right? Well, we didn't do that at the end of this, so it makes a big difference. Similarly makes a difference to understand the culture of, of different places. Let me give you an example. When we rolled into Iraq, we did not fully understand my opinion. We did not fully understand the impact of the Ba'ath Party. And so debathification happened. Have we understood, like MacArthur understood Japan and kept the emperor there, that we would have kept most people that were members of the Ba'ath Party because in order to be an engineer, in order to run an oil rig, in order to be a teacher, in order to be a doctor, you had to be part of the Ba'ath Party. So it didn't necessarily mean you, they were all raving lunatics because they were part of the Ba'ath Party. They just happened to be the professionals of the country. And so debathification didn't work. And I offer to you that if, um, if uh, Kim Jong-un, the guy with the bad haircut, happens to um, uh, be taken out one day, whether his own people do or, or, or somebody else does or he just dies, whatever the case is, we cannot repeat that mistake again. We cannot remove all of the elites because the elites that are there, many of whom, frankly, are, are thirsting for democracy, but those are the people that can run the country. So we have to be very careful of how we deal with that as we move forward. Chemical events all over, but this was a, uh, the number of chemical events that were reported in one way or the other over a, um, a three-month period. And these were some of the terrorist events in that same period. How about national debt for a minute? So when I started doing some research on this and finding out what countries have gone bankrupt in the past, a couple kind of got my attention here. Right? I don't know how many of you knew that. You probably all did, but I didn't know that um, until I started doing some research on it. This is a small smattering of it. Countries do go bankrupt, and bad things happen when countries go bankrupt. We talked about how much the national debt is right now, and it continues to grow. It is, it is my offer to you that the number one threat to national security day today is this, the number one threat by a long shot. Okay, It's more than al-Qaeda or anything else. Because when you can't do this, you can't build your infrastructure, you can't build your military. But more importantly to me is you can't educate your people to get them to the level that you need them to, not properly. And we have got to get back to that. We've got to get back to having a healthier population. We've got to get back to having the, the best educated by a long shot again. And you can't do that if your debt is greater than your GDP. You just can't do that. Sir, do you agree with that, that statement? OK. So I offer to you that these two countries are too big to fail. And I know that's a horrible term to use, but I use it for a reason. I really do believe that. If you go down and you look at this, and I've talked to a lot of very senior economists, both in our country and others, and they say if one of these two countries' economies fail, they, the spiral for the rest of the world is absolutely significant. And if you look at where we are right now and how we got there, it's pretty frightening. We don't have anything left to borrow on. 
And we're kind of at the end game here, and we have to go in and now start actually being fiscally responsible and bringing that debt back down. National disunity. If I were going to rank them, this would be number two right now of my, of my uh, ideas on threats to national security. And why? Because I think if you look at the Pew report here, which basically says, where do we agree and don't agree? And we all know, and we, you, you're watching it day by day. Watch Fox News and watch NBC report on the exact same event. Doesn't matter who you agree with, okay? But they are gonna be very different reports. And why is that? Well, it's because the people that watch Fox are going further in one direction, and the people who watch NBC or CNN go further in the other direction. We need to figure out how to take this and get it back to this, which is where we need to be. We need to be back over here somewhere where the reality is that the, the preponderance of, of what we're arguing about is in the margins. And right now we're getting more and more splintered. You're having way too many 51 to 49 votes in the Senate. Way too many of those. And, and we, we need to figure out how to get back to saying, you know what, this isn't a Democratic issue or a Republic issue. It, it's a U.S. issue. And, and how do we get back to that? Well, in my humble opinion, the only way we're going to get back to this is if you have a third party come in, and that third party comes in and actually starts winning. The Common Sense Party of America, I don't know what it's called, <laughs> okay, right. That's, that's what I've always said. We should have the Common Sense Party of America. You can see that going on YouTube. And, and, um, and so there it is. You have the Common Sense Party, and they say, you know what, Th this is ridiculous. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm not a, I don't believe in what the Republicans are saying or what the Democrats are saying, but in this particular case, this just makes more sense for the country. I, I think that's the way you do this, because at the end of the day, the only way this is going to change is when the voters make a change because people are now voting for the extremes on either side, and that just has to stop. Good question. Sir. Would this relate to militias as well? Absolutely. It, it, not, only, not only militias, but, but it, it uh, relates to uh, race issues that we have right now, cultural issues that we have right now, financial issues that we have right now, the haves and the have-nots. Um, our, our middle class is shrinking, um, and, and that stuff's just got to stop. It's just, it just has to stop. And the only way you do this is you, you start bringing in, frankly, first of all, you bring in really smart people in a room like this, and, and you start having these conversations again, which is what needs to happen. And then some of these folks need to say, you know what, I'm going to run for office. As ugly as it is, and I know that I'm going to get drugged through the mud, whatever it is, I'm going to run for office because I'm not going to be that far right or far left guy, my opinion. Do you agree with that or not? Hard to say, huh? Yeah, it is. Thanks for asking the question. I want to touch just for a second on displaced persons. I mentioned earlier that there's about 65 million displaced persons, and there's really three different definitions. There's asylum seekers, and that's about 3.2 million people. Those are the people that are running from something because they are being threatened. Political refugee is normally the case. So we dealt with this in the United States Navy on occasion, where you pull into another country, you take your aircraft carrier, and you have you know, a couple acres of sovereign US territory pulling pier side, and up, run, up running the pier is somebody who's saying, I'm seeking asylum. 
now they're on U.S. territory. Okay, that's that. Internally displaced persons is the preponderance of this, 40.8 million. You want to know where most of those are? Anybody want to take a guess? Africa. Syria. Syria. Yeah, Syria, right? Remember Turkey. Think, think about this. Turkey has a population of 80 million people. Turkey has 40 million refugees right now, or 4 million refugees right now. 4 million out of 80 million. If you compare that to the United States, if you take the 13 smallest states in the United States, take all those human beings out, make, them, make, make a double of each one of them, put the original 13 back in, and you take their, their twin, and you airdrop them into the United States, the 13 smallest states, that's the equivalent of what Turkey's dealing with right now. And yet they're calling them guests. So while Turkey's getting a lot of bad rap out there, and I've visited Turkey a lot in the past year and spent time with President Erdogan and others, the one thing that they are doing really, really well is dealing with the refugee issue. They really are bringing them in and, and, uh, and, and helping as best they can. And then refugees, as you can see there again, 21.3 million. Sixty-five point three million, and by the way, we're going to have um, a lot of them. It's con continuously growing. If you think about how many refugees we lose each year, this is significant. It has an impact, and I'm not saying that every refugee. I'm not even implying that that every refugee becomes a terrorist. But imagine this for a second. Imagine that your country just got completely overrun, and now you're in a small area and you're a refugee, and in rolls ISIS. And ISIS gives you two options. Option number one is we're going, to, um, uh, we're going to kill you because you are not supporting ISIS. Or option number two is you can drive this truck for us, and if you don't drive this truck for us, you're going to sit here and watch your kids starve to death. You're physically going to watch them starve to death. Which one are you going to do? Well, it's very easy sitting here drinking our glass of wine and having our cheese uh, snaps, et cetera, to say, well, I'd do the right thing and I wouldn't drive that truck. And, and, and I hope in many cases that is the case. But you know, you, you understand the difficulty that these people face when they're a refugee and they get overrun like this and the only options they have is drive the truck or their kids starve to death. And believe me, I'm not saying that these people should be anything but gone off the face of the earth. Let me make that very clear. I think that there are just some people that need to be killed, and ISIS is one of them, okay? But I do understand the refugees and their situation because I've spoken to so many of them that have been in this situation over the last 25 years, especially over the last 10. So, refugee issues everywhere. This was, um, this was in Midyat. Uh, a few months back, I was meeting with uh, some Yazidis, the refugee camp on the Syrian-Turkey border, uh, and uh, pretty sad situation, but uh, a lot of great people down there. One of the discussions that came up while we were doing it, while we were, we were talking about this, was where do you put them back? And it's very important that when you put refugees back into their own countries, that you put them in place, one, where they're going to be safe, and two, where they're going to be able to prosper or at least survive again. So you can't take a Yazidi who is gen generally, they made their living as goat herding, and put them in an area where they do oil refinery. 
because that's not what they've been doing for the last 300 years. Doesn't mean they can't be trained, but it'll take a while. So you just got to set them up for success as well. So you start overlaying all those things on top of each other, and what you get is a pretty complex environment of terrorism, of WMD, of the money issues we're talking about in the US and China and other places around the world, um, of the actual combat operations that are going on. Oh, by the way, there's still this place called Afghanistan. There's some, still some things going on in Iraq. There's still this little thing called Ukraine going on. There's still this thing called Georgia going on. You still have Sunnis and Shias that are not necessarily loving each other for the last oh, thousand plus years um, in, in the Middle East, et cetera, and that list goes on. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the Social University. We are the Grad School for Life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.